This is an AMI podcast. What was charitable engagement in the 1940s and 1950s and early 1960s? It was very much driven. I mean, it was a, a different approach. It was, you know, the old days. And so, you know, there were service clubs and service organizations incredibly active across the country. Well, that landscape changed and it continues to change in the same way that CNIB has changed from a set of fairly boilerplate kinds of programs and activities to become much more complicated and much more resourceful, I think, in the kinds of programs and services that it offers. Welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best. Today, we are continuing our exploration into the danger of a single-story narrative. And with us, we have Jane Beaumont, who is the archivist at the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, and Kevin Burns, who held the position of chair on the governance committee on the board of directors for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. So, Peter, what is our topic of discussion for today? Thanks, David. So as you said, we're continuing our exploration of the theme of the danger of a single story, and we're starting a series on governance. We're going to be exploring how governance relates to a single story, or is there a relationship between governance and and the single story? When I think of governance, I think of how And in this case, in particular, organizations function uh, under sort of what rules and what structures. And often that can tell people about the culture of that organization, how it's run, maybe what the hierarchy is, that kind of thing. So welcome to Triple Vision, Jane and Kevin. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be back with you. I've been involved with CNIB for about 25 years now, primarily with the library initially, and then extensively with governance, both the library board and then as chair of the National Board of Directors. Hi, so I'm, I'm Kevin Burns and also uh, here in Ottawa, uh, as is Jane, and uh, I've been with CNIB just a few years uh, shorter than the 25 years that she mentions, about 20 years off and on, beginning with the library board and most recently with the national board uh, of what is now the foundation of CNIB. And I've just finished my second term of that board uh, responsibility. And during the time on the board, I was chair of the governance uh, committee. So the, the, the word governance uh, has more than a single story <laughs> to tell, <Yes. laughs> which is great. Jane, that's where I look to you as archivist. Can we go right back to the founding of CNIB and and how the organization organized itself? Maybe you can remind me of when that was. So CNIB itself was formed in 1918, but the story goes back um, almost another 20 years because in 1907, Somewhat a blind scholar called Bert Robinson founded a library in his father's home in Markham. And through that library, he shared his Braille books and he he and his father created a newsletter. And by um, 1913, the library had moved, Bert had died and the library had moved to Toronto. And it did have an advisory board. And a member of that board um, was Sherman Swift, who... um, blinded as a child as part of because of an accident and he took over as a um, chief librarian and in fact stayed as chief librarian until the 1946 when he died in still in the job 
But the ongoing activities of the Canadian Free Library for the Blind set the stage for the creation of CNIB. And the board members, I think there were seven board members for the library, and they all became the founding board of CNIB. So two of those members of the founding board were blinded veterans, and five of them had vision loss. The founders had to be registered with the federal government, and they went through that process and created a constitution. And then there were about 600 users of the library, and they automatically became members of CNIB. So what did that structure look like, Jane? How different is that structure, uh, was that structure then compared to what you'd see today? Since day one, there has been a board, a governing board of the organization. It has changed, but it, it's, all, it's basically a legal structure that allows an, a not-for-profit organization to be governed by, me, by members. But the, the definition of members has changed over the years. So how big an influence was the fact that many of these, well, many of the seven, seven founders were from a military background. Did that, did that spill over? No, I, I, I don't agree that they were from a military background. There were two who were World War I veterans. The others were an accountant, a, a very res- well-respected doctor, a lawyer. And so they're just two who were veterans. Okay. I think when you talk about the military culture, that was really the management style of the 1920s right through till the 60s. And that Mm. was led by Colonel Baker, Edwin Baker, who was the president and managing director through all of that period. And he certainly had a military bent to his activities. And and we, as we understand it, it was a, a very hierarchical organization with a strict management structure. And in Euclid Harry, who later wrote the history of CNIB, doesn't think that military culture didn't really change until the, la- the late 1960s, after Baker had retired, and also a number of his longtime managers had retired. So there was a military culture in the, in the management team led by a military-minded managing director. But it was never, re- I don't think it was part of the governing board. The governing right. board was a legal structure that was required. Right. And the chair of the board through most of this period to the 1960s was someone called Lewis Wood, one of the, one of the founders, an accountant, and, an, and by all repute, an extremely generous and good fundraiser who helped to get, get CNIB off the ground. And I would say, you know, this military thing, I mean, you know, they, they came through a First World War. They knew about resources, organization, responsibility, dependency, focus, management of resources. So, you know, that, that was also the time. The people who used the services of CNIB were people who needed the services of CNIB. And so it was not f- focused. Uh, you had to be uh, a, a veteran or you had to be whatever. This is about dealing with vision loss in, in whatever form that took and for whatever reason that's your experience. So it was an open door to people of all ages and of all experiences with that condition. But the issue, of course, is we're talking about working with disability at a time when we call it disability studies now. But back then, it was called something else. It was called charity. It was called helping out. So one of the things that is, is you know, the, the, the 
a big line in this story of CNIB is how the instinct to be a charitable organization providing services becomes a movement that is about dealing with people's full participation in whatever way they choose to live their lives. That's the transformation uh, of CNIB over the years. And the governance model that sort of behind that um, is full of the basics of regulation, consistency, policy, uh, legal frameworks, transparency, all of that stuff. But you have another story underneath that, which is how people thought about Uh, people with disabilities. I mean, we are talking in the 1920s and the 1930s when the word eugenics was part of the conversation. We had provincial governments in this country that did the enforced sterilization of people they deemed to be, for whatever reason, incompetent. Now, this also is part of the history in the sense that CNIB is struggling to prevent that way of thinking to enable people to become fully who they can become through education and resources and support appropriately. So it's a very, you know, it's a, you know, we talked about it being the one big story. There's a wonderful story underneath here, which is to do with how we change our way of thinking about disability. I'm curious about the whole idea of registration. How does that happen? Why is that important? So I think the use of the word registration, I, re- I read it as meaning CNIB has registered that this person has vision loss Mm. and is entitled to services. And a lot of those services are things which are not necessarily managed by CNIB. Today, things like transportation discounts, alternate format books through CELA, a a registered client of CNIB has a right to those um, those services and those services are limited to people with vision loss. So to me, that's all regist- registered means. It's not. It's it's simply that CNIB. Has, it, it could be as simple as you have a CNIB card and you can show it mm-hmm. when you get on the bus. It's interesting because, as you say, you've got registration, which entitles you yeah. to services, and you could have a card, but that's different than being a member, as we talked about. So, can we talk about? membership well, for so, a minute what what that so means now, since it, in the early days they talked about them the people who used the library and became it automatically included in cnib's registration were talked about as members um today i think kevin and i both agree because we've been involved in the modern version of governance that members is a very specific legal definition for the people who um, are legally members of the organization. Right now, CNIB still has several, quite a few hundred members, m- many of whom are life members, and that's because they paid a fee and they care about CNIB, and it isn't anything to do with whether or not they have vision loss. Nowadays, the, the members can be no more than the members of the national board. So we, CNIB could have as few as 20 or 30 members, and it would still be a valid organization. And it, it has to hold an AGM each year and it has to have a quorum of that AGM. So members is really tied up now in the very legal definition of the corporation. 
And I can say from a governance perspective, you yeah. have to be, quote, a member, unquote, to be uh, a member of the board. So yeah. it's, it's a kind of self-enclosed uh, issue. But your question is very interesting because what you are raising, not, not only about what is the relationship between the people who engage with the programs and services and in whatever CNIB is all about, but is this work with CNIB, is it a movement? Is it a movement of people uh, that, like many movements, uh, you would in fact encourage members and have, you know, you, you, this, this would be a, a way to express an involvement and an engagement and a support. So support comes to CNIB through people who donate, people who bequest. So that's a level of support through fundraising. There are clearly a number of people uh, who are very attuned to the issues of vision loss, blindness, disability, disability studies, and who you know, have an, a connection to the CNIB as a, as a movement in that organization. But, you know, the, the, could CNIB become a groundswell um, public uh, membership uh, organization and a force? Prob could. Uh, it's certainly not a discussion on the cards uh, mm. that uh, we had uh, in, you know, the, the years that I was involved with CNIB that stopped it this last September. So I understand then from what you say that the CNIB organization, it is a service organization for the blind. It is not a service organization of the blind because clients are not necessarily members. Cl registered clients do not vote, but members do vote on resolution. Yeah. Is, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. But let me also say that there's a governance practice that any committee, board or committee, or advisory group to CNIB has to have representation of 50% people with vision loss. So that changes the dynamic. It's, it's, it's not sighted people running the shop. But those representation are not clients necessarily. Is that correct? 50% 50 of them will be, should be. On the advisory committees? On committees and boards. Yeah, so the national board, yeah. you know, the foundation board, that's the composition of the national uh, foundation right. board. It's 50-50. And so they are considered to be members then when they take on that role. They have to be members to take on that role. Yeah. They're, they're probably both and members there, and clients. There's another, and then there's another level which we haven't talked about, which in CNIB is the division boards, which are regional um, commit. They're really regional advisory boards. And... Um, so those those are those people deal with um, and work on local local programs, fundraising, local issues, which may not be the same as the national issues. So there is a there is a structure of regional advisory boards that um, that feed into the national board and advise the president and the and the regional vice presidents. But they are not, they, if you're being a governance purist, they are not governing boards, they are advisory boards. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, part of the interesting thing about that structure, advisory boards, absolutely, but what you have is a finger on the pulse of yes. a whole lot of issues. Absolutely. And you get feedback on all kinds of uh, perspectives because yeah. you're dealing with people across the country. It's not a, a group in a certain place with ideas that they're having for somewhere else. It's mm -hmm. about a community learning from and with each other. What was 
charitable engagement in the 1940s and 1950s and early 1960s, it was very much driven. I mean, it was a, a different approach. It was, you know, the old days. And so, you know, there were service clubs and service organizations incredibly active across the country. Well, that landscape changed and it continues to change in the same way that CNIB has changed from a set of fairly boilerplate kinds of programs and activities to become much more complicated and much more resourceful, I think, in the kinds of programs and services that it offers. So that's a change. You know, you change in a program. It also means that there's some kind of change in management happening at the same time. And most importantly, on the governance side, is that there is a change in the kind of input and the kind of participation you get across the country. So so actually, when by the time we got to the 1990s, the so-called National Council, which was the governing body, had 46 members, which was an extremely unmanageable and over, overpopulated group that people still didn't really have the influence and the input that they wanted. And I, I think from what I've read, the, the power at CNIB was an executive committee, which was a very small subset of that for those 46 people. Mm-hmm. So it, it swung all the way to, the, to a huge governing body, which wasn't very manageable, and then started to come back in the late 90s and 20s into the 2000s. And I could say this, I mean, maybe there was a time that the CNIB thought it was the only game in town, uh, but the CNIB certainly knows it isn't. Uh, and CNIB uh, is not interested in being the only game in town. Uh, it's it's a coalition of, of engagement uh, around a major, major issue in Canada. And actually, the I mean, only game in town, a perfect example, was the CNIB library. And when, around, when Kevin and I became involved, CNIB believed it was the, were the only organization that could provide library service to people with vision loss. And that leads very well into the new structure because they, CNI, clients of CNIB were not getting library service, any comparison compared to our public library service. And so... The answer to that was, um, and partly consumer-led and advocated for, was to move the library service into the public library. And I see as a governance kind of story, the way the um, library, um, which was solely a CNIB activity, uh, was had devolved into a public service, publicly funded, equally, equally available across the country. That same issue obviously can apply to other actions and other programs and other services that CNIB is currently involved in. So it's a very interesting model. Uh, if it happened to the library, it could happen to other things. Is that what happened then, um, Kevin? So as the organization divided into three and Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada became funded by provincial health services, as I understand it, is that, that sort of you know migration to a more publicly funded model in some areas? Yeah. So the point the point of both of library and vision loss re- rehabilitation is that in those services in any area except for vision people with vision loss were funded by the government in some form or other. If you broke your leg, you got rehab through the health service. If you lost your sight, you got rehab from a charity. So CNIB took the library model and applied it to um, to the vision loss rehabilitation. And so the evolution of uh, vision loss rehabilitation and deafblind services, uh, so three 
activities and the, the CNIB Foundation being the third um, is, is a natural progression of, of organizing appropriately around the purpose of the entity. So, you know, vision loss rehabilitation is effectively the sort of the medical piece of CNIB. The foundation is all the employment, technology, community engagement part of the piece. And deafblind services is obviously a, a very service delivery model. So what we now have is a structure that allows those entities to be fully independent. They each have their own boards, but uh, it's a complicated governance piece. They're part of this entity called the CNIB. Independent as they are, they are part of the CNIB world. You're right on the healthcare side. It's worth noting the library services are not like that. The CELA is a totally independent organization. CNIB doesn't fund it anymore. It mm. does work for them, but it's paid to do that work. So they're, they're different models, and, and CELA has its own board. Um, so CNIB does not own CELA um, in the same way that it still owns a large part of vision loss rehab and deafblind services. DeafBlind Services raises its own funds through the programs and services that it offers. It's um, f- funded provincially. It's activity-based. The um, uh, vision loss rehabilitation is funded province by province according to the billable things that are, you know, it's all part of health deliverables, all with this little number of what you deliver. And as the foundation, uh, the sort of CNAB middle piece, as those programs and services also continue uh, to seek funding wherever it uh, can be provided. They each have their own governance framed board of directors. So VLRC has its board, DeafBlind Services has its board, the Foundation has its board. And there is a member, formal member of CNIB, who is on the board of the other. So you have one person who is on the board of the other. And the other interesting thing about this three-part model uh, is that there's a, a concept that most businesses will know called shared services. So there's an, an, a, a movement at the center that allows support, whether it's technology, uh, finances, reporting, fiscal control, all of that stuff, that can be charged back, paid for by the larger organization. So it's a reciprocal kind of arrangement. But having said that, each of those entities are fully independent of each other. And we have this phrase in CNIB, we are stronger together. So the word stronger together is the name of a document that can that um, contains what those relationships are and what those expectations are, and also what the governance picture is of that. So it's 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 still a new thing within CNIB, and like all governance stories, uh, they're kind of complicated and a bit messy at the beginning, but they speak to a very different way of operating, which is highly participatory, which is uh, you know in, in many ways the reworking of the um, hierarchical, charitable, this is good for you kind of thinking uh, that is to do with about empowerment. And it, it takes us back to how we consider what is a disability, how do we work with disability, and how we as a community are working with each other on this. We're not doing things for people. We are working together to transform the way of living in this country. Do they each have their own charitable status or do they come under a single license? No, they're single. They're 
they're a single license. I, I think the Visionos Rehab has its own charitable number and is it is a re separately registered not-for-profit corporation, but definitely not. The, there is a single CNIB charitable number. Given all of that, what is CNIB? <laughs> Good question. Um, it's it is um, a an example of what happens over time to people who think they want to do the right thing and how that right thing hasn't changed very much. What has changed totally is how it's done. What has changed totally is perhaps why it's done in the sense that the, the conversation has changed. It's no, no, charity. I mean, charity, you know, what does the word mean? It means love, <laughs> actually. Uh, you know, so you think, okay, we're doing charitable work. Oh, that's interesting. We are doing work that is community-enhancing, community-supportive, work that is transformative, work that is goal-driven of changing what it means to have a certain kind of experience. And in doing so, making this place called Canada a better place for everybody, regardless of the circumstances. Now, over 100 years ago, they wouldn't have used that language, but they were trying to make things different for people. They were trying to give people a chance, a leg up, you know, whatever. But so over time, what we see is how organizations change, programs and services sort of change. But what is at the heart of it is an understanding that something has to happen here. And unfortunately, at the moment, we are the ones that have to make it happen because no one else is doing it for us. So the CNIB is a multifaceted organization. And I understand that its primary objective is service. It provides service for those with vision loss. Is, is, there a, is there a role or is there an area within CNIB to be an advocate? And how does that fit into the charity model? Absolutely. I, there's, um, I'm, I'm, I just pulled up the CNIB homepage. And if you look at the areas that they're really active in now, it's helping people to live the life they want to live, it, to play, to do the things they want to do. But it's also... Um, supporting people with vision loss in getting work, in learning, and in technology. And those are all things that um, have evolved as the things that people need today. Other people with other disabilities, whether it's a, a social or physical, get the same kind of support from other organizations. So I see CNIB, and particularly the foundation, as um, support for a very particular community. And all of it is driven by wanting people to live the lives that they want to live. And one of the most, I mean, one of the very successful ones at the moment is the work that CNIB Foundation's doing in the workplace, in setting up partnerships with large corporations and employers, and making sure that those employers understand what someone with vision loss just needs in terms of accommodation in order to do their job. And then CNIB gets out of the way. So that's that's the modern version of a charity. And that's what CNIB is to me anyway. Personally, it's been a good discussion and good education. It's almost like a governance 101 uh, <laughs> with respect to CNIB. I think 
over the years, my impression, I'll just kind of be honest, is that CNIB has, has been a bit of a monolith, right? Like, and, and even a bit of a black box that you don't always know sort of yeah. what's going on or how to penetrate mm -hmm. that. So I really appreciate you breaking that down and, and telling us how the organization is moving into the, the, the new century, 23 years into the new century anyway. So really appreciate you coming on and doing that for us today. Great, it was a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So Peter and Hannah, that was an interesting interview. And I was just wondering, what is your take on, on that conversation? Well, I'll start, David. I think it's really important to put that conversation in context, in the context of the podcast. As we said at the beginning of the podcast, we're talking about governance. In this case, it happens to be the governance of CNIB. And we brought on these two guests to talk about that in terms of their Jane, her historical perspective, and Kevin, his historical plus current perspective. And that's what we got. We got um, their perspective on the organization and how it's run. But I still think that the community has different perspectives about that. And that's what we, we'll be exploring in future podcasts. So that's what I'm looking forward to is having other people on who can share how they think and they feel about what we heard about today. I felt like, you know, after it was over, I felt like, well, that was a very nice, clean, smooth kind of description of uh, of an organization. But I think as with most of us, you know, we've all had our individual experiences with it. And it didn't quite sort of match. I don't think it matched a lot of our individual experiences. So I think there's, you know, maybe there's a gap between the sincerity of board members working for our interests, we hope, and sort of the on the ground delivery of, of these programs, because the experiences as a consumer are not quite as advertised in the podcast. So we do need to explore that some more. I found it a little bit confusing. Uh, I think it sort of laid the groundwork for what the organization is trying to do. But I, I find that, um, that there's, well, maybe they've made it purposely complex, but it seems rather confusing because I can understand the three parts. The part I don't understand is the CNIB foundation side of things. It, uh, I'm not sure if it's the parent or if it's the older sibling, but it seems to be the dominant of the three. And the challenge that I have is that it seems to perform two roles. One is charity, where it's going out and getting money to provide support and services, such as the guide dogs. And then on the other hand, it's going out and advocating, saying that people have abilities and we need to hire them. So I'm just wondering if we're collecting money to provide the needs on one side and on the other side they're saying well these people are quite capable we need to hire them and hmm. and get them in jobs That's... so i'm just a little confused with the role that they the, the foundation plays in both charity and advocating that's an excellent point david i mean there's the role and there's the messaging right so the messaging is sometimes is you know we we need your money we need your support in order to provide programs and as you say the other message is yet yeah, people are capable and competent and able to sort of function on their own out in the world. So are those two messages somehow mutually exclusive? I think these are really good questions to ask some of the members of the uh, community going forward. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think too, you know, they talked a lot about blind people being represented on their various boards, but I mean, that's just one or two people on each board maybe. And there are thousands of us. And I think there's quite a gap in there, a communication gap between those people that are representing us, which sounds good on paper that you have blind people representing blind people, but I don't think it always works out quite that way. So in terms of our theme of the single story, I think that's exactly what we heard today was one story about governance and how uh, a couple of people within the organization see that story. I think there are other stories, as I've said, you know, members of the community will, will have a different story about how that's impacted on them and how they perceive the organization. Yeah, I, I think the danger of the single story in this case is depending on what side of the foundation you're listening to. If you're, if you're just the general public and you're wanting to give money to help, you're listening to how people are needing help. But if you're on the other side looking to maybe employ people, you're hearing the story about how capable people are. So I think there's a, a bit of a confusing narrative there. Yeah, I, I think this, the danger of the single story for me is we didn't really hear much in there about clients along the way in the history. Like, you know, how many clients were served all through this and, and what kind of services are they focusing on and what kind of success did they have with them? And especially, I think, you know, the big story for me always is what's changed? I mean, all these years, we're still, you know, high unemployment, all those things. So that story hasn't changed, right? So is it linked to the single story of of CNIB? I guess we'll have to explore that. Those are all good questions, yes. So we'll continue to explore those answers as we move forward with our series on governance and the danger of a single story around governance. Thanks for listening. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of Alliant, A-L-L-Y-A-N-T, and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, AEBC. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Jacob Shemansky is the technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions or comments, you can email us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21. We see a higher unemployment rate for disabled individuals. Take a deep dive into the issues impacting the disability community. Consent, when you're complexly disabled, goes a lot deeper. It's not just yes or no, like we're so used to understanding it. It's sighted people who are making assumptions about blindness, and that is what is informing the cultural perception of blindness. The Pulse. Download from your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe on YouTube.